Hi, I'm Reagan, and thanks for listening to my dad's podcast, Lasting Learning. Hi, this is Dave Schmidow, the host of the Lasting Learning Podcast. On this show, we talk to real people with real stories. We focus on the focus and discuss what matters most. Let's go. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. You know, every week I tell you how excited I am that you are back to listen to another episode. But this week, wow. I mean, I I mean it like I have never meant it before because this is an episode I have been dying to record for a long time. You know, sometimes you have those people in your life, in your personal life, in your professional life that you kind of just put up on a pedestal and you say, one day, one day, I want to be able to just sit down and have a conversation with that person. Today is that day for me. That's it. Today, you are getting to, to watch and listen to me talk to somebody that inspires me like few other people on this planet. Let me just give you a little bit of this person's biography before I mention his name and let him start talking. So first of all, he's an innovator, an author, an educational change agent. He's doing all the things and saying all the things that we need to hear. He has also been appointed to the UN General Assembly by President Barack Obama, PhD in engineering from Stanford University. He's got a degree from William & Mary. He has traveled to all 50 states talking to all the right people about all of the right things. And today, he's here talking to me and to us. That's right. Today, I have Ted Dentersmith joining us. Ted, thank you so, so much for having this conversation today. No, I'm thrilled to be here, but my best move is to just say nothing more. Just leave <laughs> it at that introduction because it is only downhill from here. <laughs> well, that's okay. We'll go back down the hill and we'll talk about the journey up the hill. That's totally fine. We can have that conversation. So people that might not necessarily know your name, which would be crazy if they don't, they might know some of your work. They might know that you wrote uh, Most Likely to Succeed, that you had this partnership with Tony Wagner, that uh, you, uh, you wrote What Schools Could Be, you are a film producer, um, you, you really put High Tech High on the map. A lot of people in San Diego knew who it was, but now people internationally know what it's about. But what else do people need to know about you? <laughs> my, if my wife were walking by, boy, she would fill people in. <laughs> I'd be embarrassed, you know. Let's so, just stop this interview. Go grab her real quick. I'll talk yeah, to her. Yeah, that, that, you know, like, oh my gosh, she just said, "Let me at this one." That would be. Uh, I opened up a few people's eyes. You know, I, I'd say the following. I, I'd say, um, you know, when I first got interested in education, I was surprised at the reaction educators had when someone would introduce me, you know, Ted had a career in business. Now he's interested in education. I thought people would be, you know, like, oh, isn't that great? And, and they weren't. And I'd say I, I, at this point, have great appreciation for the skepticism. You know, I feel like I have to work 10 times harder because I feel like so many people with business backgrounds have made a mess of what they've done in education. And just as, you know, when I say to a business colleague, uh, how would you feel if your board of directors were all teachers? They would say, well, what, what do teachers know about, you know, a high-tech software company? I'd say, fair enough. I'd say, how do you think teachers feel if the policies and priorities shoved down their throats come from business people who've never taught in the classroom? And they'll say, well, that's an interesting point. And I say, it's a very interesting point. Just because you went to school 30, 40, 50 years ago, doesn't give you claim to any expertise. And so to this day, I, I really am not comfortable and actually correct if I'm ever introduced as an education expert, because I really don't believe I am. I, I think I have a, a degree of uh, expertise in innovation, what the future will look like if, to the extent anybody can predict it. But I'd say that, I'd say that, you know, I do feel like there's a degree of um, humility we all need to take 
when we get involved in something we don't understand that well. And so I've come away from a 10 year deep dive, deeply appreciative of the work of our educators. You know, they blow me away with their dedication. I write a book about how this isn't nuclear fusion where we have to invent something from scratch or go to Finland or Singapore. I mean, we have teachers all across the country doing these incredible things. And to a large extent, we just need to trust them let them do what they entered the profession to do, which is to engage and inspire their kids in ways that are differentiated in ways that play to that kid's interest and strengths and curiosities. And so that, that's probably what I'd, I'd add in terms of, uh, of my background. And you know, it's, as I say, I've developed a fair amount of humility because by the way, you know, like I, I'll get done some days, my wife would also tell you this, is I'll get done someday. I say, I'm exhausted. And she'll say, why? And I said, I had like, can you believe it? I had three Zoom calls today. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, like this is, this would be a light day for our teachers right now. And I think that, that people need to understand. And I actually think one of the upsides of the pandemic is we now have a much greater appreciation for the role of, of teachers in the lives of our kids and in, in the futures of our communities. Uh, that, that humility, I think, is what uh, gives credence to your voice to so many, because you, you don't come across as somebody that says, I have the answer, just copy my script and, and, I'll, and, and the world will be changed. Instead, you ask the questions that cause educators to reflect. And a lot of the questions you ask are more organization questions, system questions, as opposed to critical of the teachers because yeah, you nailed it. Teachers are out there doing God's work every single day, trying to change lives. But sometimes we put initiatives, policies, goals that get in their way, that uh, confuse the, the situation. And yes, you've got this innovator um, background, you've got this business background, but you also have the lens of being a parent that I know opened up your eyes to education and some of your questions about education. So some people um, might be familiar with your, your TEDx talk from, from Fargo. Other people might not have seen it yet, but it kind of details your journey in exploring education. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? What caused you to open up the door and say, ooh, I'm intrigued by the world of education? Yeah, well, the talk, there's a funny story behind that talk because I, I was, you know, it was late July, uh, goes back to 2015. And a mutual friend had connected me to this great guy in Fargo, North Dakota, who runs TEDx Fargo, or everything's been a bit suspended because of COVID, but uh, Greg Tavine. And, and Greg was doing kind of an incubator, you know, in Fargo. So he called me about some questions having to do with startups. And we got into some different things. What are you interested in? I said, I'm really focused on education issues. He's talking about, you know, TEDx Fargo. And then in the middle of the phone call, he says, oh my gosh, somebody just canceled for next week. Can you fly out to Fargo, you know, in six days and give this talk? And, uh, and the only reason I said yes is that for like five years in a row, my New Year's resolution had go to North Dakota because it was the one state I hadn't been to. And so I said, sure, I'll do it. And that's, you know, that's when I pulled together the talk, which actually gave me the idea of going to all 50 states. So it's like one thing leads to another, which is so often the case. But but I related in that talk an experience I had uh, when our kids were in middle school. And, you know, I got a note from the school and, you know, the people at the school work really hard um, and, and I respect that. But the note was sort of like, we're launching a brand new program to teach your kids important life skills. Come to this lunch and hear about it. And I'm like, that's great. You know, like what, what's not to like about a program to teach kids important life skills? But then I started thinking like, why is this a new initiative? You know, like, what? Well, why, why is this not the essence of school? I mean, you know, like, this is really interesting to me. So I sort of made a list in my own mind before that brown bag lunch about what I wanted my kids to come through the school process being good at, <clears throat> which is something I encourage all communities to do. Just what, what do you want your kids to come through school having gotten good at? And you know, I went to that lunch. It was, you know, it was like, not surprisingly, it was like, you know, the, the, they do once a month, they'd show videos of car wrecks or something and say, drive safely and things like that. So that's not a bad thing, but it just wasn't going right at the core. And I then started to track everything my kids did in school for, you know, a couple months. And, and I looked at 
knowing, you know, from the vantage point of being an adult, okay, fair enough, at least most days behaving like an adult, um, but also having a ringside seat to a world that's increasingly driven by creativity, by curiosity. So my initial list said, what's relevant and what's beneficial? And as I started to look kind of at a relatively granular, granular level, you know, like what they were spending, you know, a fair amount of time on, I, I just had all of these things that I just said, they'll never use that as an adult. You know, it's opposite versus ibid. It's factoring polynomials. It's, you know, I mean, it just went on and on and on. And I was finding very little that was beneficial, but I started to see things that I actually said, this is going to impair their futures. And, and when that happened, I just said, wait a minute, which then led to this entire process, you know, like the last 10 years of my life totally changed. And I, you know, I sort of said, it's really, I think, uh, powerful to sort of spend a little time thinking about what's the world gonna be like for our kids as adults? What are the competencies that will be valued? And kind of work back from there and say what types of school experiences will help them develop those competencies, help those competencies that may be there when they're young not die off, which led to the movie. You know, I, I, you know, I, I hooked up with Tony Wagner. We found this, you know, we actually started at 12 schools, found a great director. I'm gonna brag about my director. He did Last Chance You and Cheer for Netflix, uh, but I found him at a great point in his career. So I funded them for two, you know, funded a team of four filmmakers for two years to do that film, but it just sort of works back. It says, you know, in the world as best we can predict it, what types of school experiences will give the kids the types of, of skills and mindsets that will serve them well? And, you know, the film's great. It's, it's on my website and, and on our What School Could Be website for free. I, you know, so anybody who wants to watch it, if you haven't seen it, I'd beg you to watch it. But Also um, on Amazon Prime. There's a shameless plug. Yeah, <laughs> Carry on. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's there. And, um, you know, but that was, that was really powerful. And what I found as I started traveling with the film is, you know, parents would see it and say, oh, I want my kids in that kind of school. You know, teachers would say, they'd say that's exactly the kind of school I want to teach in. Where teachers at the, where we focus the filming are trusted to teach to their passions and expertise, trusted to offer learning challenges to kids that they feel are the right thing for their kids, not what the state of California, or the US Department of Education says. And, you know, we're, um, parent, you know, kids say, this is where I want to be in school. We're, where people in the adult world, businesses, nonprofits say, yeah, this would be way better preparation. And then fundamentally though, the question I got from everybody was, you know, like, we'd love to do this, but boy, we could never do this. And I, that I don't agree with. I think every school can do these things. And we've worked really hard to offer these supportive resources where we capture best practices in the field. So we're, we're not in a pulling together a bunch of education PhDs, you know, heaven forbid to say, this is what you have to do, or a bunch of business people, this is what you have to do. But just working really hard to find what educators in the field are excited about, capture it with great video, and then offer it as suggested support. And so that's, that's really defined my life over the last 10 years. It's powerful. It, so I wanna unpack some of that real quick, if that's okay. So the, the film, and the, the, the book that really blew my mind and illuminated me most likely to succeed um, really talks about the, the concept you just articulated. Are we really preparing our students for success and what is it that defines success? Can, if, if you had to, how would you define a successful school? How do you articulate that? How do you determine whether or not a school is meeting its aims? Well, I I first start with what are your aims? You know, like I don't presume to say to a school your aim should be, mm. but I say it's, I think it's really important for you to say what your goals are, you know? And, and so we offer on our, on our uh, resource flow, you know, we say, and this works really powerful. I've, I've done a bunch of these sessions where watch the film most likely to succeed as a community. And then I'm a big fan of what Ed Leader 21 does with Portrait of a Graduate, you know, where the community comes together and says, we want our kids to be, good at, or we want kids to have these ethics or characteristics or skills or mindsets. And what I find so interesting is when the community is invited to set their own goals, it's basic human nature. You know, when we set our own goals, we will go to the ends of the earth to exceed them. Mm. When, you know, a state government or a federal government shoves goals down our throats and says, this is what you have to do, 
you know, it's like, it's like moving cinder blocks from one side of a field to another. I mean, it just is not the same. And so my definition of success, my priorities for my kids could be very different from somebody else's. And I, I just respect that because I don't find parents, nor do I find educated. I don't find people that say, I want my kid to, uh, march on the Capitol with, with an AK-47 and break down windows and, and defecate all over documents. You know, it's like, I don't find them say, I want my kid to be addicted to video games. I don't, you know, they don't, people don't have bad goals for their kids, but, but they have interesting goals and they have aspirational goals. And when we start to invite a conversation and a consensus building process with educators, with students, with parents, with community members, to say, this is what we hope our kids will get good at through these precious years of school. It brings communities together. It lifts sights about what's possible. And that to me is the, the backbone of how we're gonna help schools make rapid progress. And, you know, I, I wanna reset this because you talk about the last 10 years of your life being devoted to this. And your la the last 10 years of your life um, have been spent writing and speaking and producing films, but also playing the role of an educational historian, if you will. One of the things that I love about your work is that you don't, you don't pretend that this just happened overnight. You sell the case, going back to the Committee of 10, a Nation of Risk at Risk in 1983, No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top, and how we continue to, to chip away at the foundational bedrock of, of education even throughout a child's journey from the time they're five years old and they're inquisitive to the time that they are 17 years old and rule-driven, compliant, and just jumping through the hoops that we put in front of them. Because we have so many layers and it's been scaffolded, there's, there are a lot of layers to start peeling back. You know, it's, it's almost like that onion. Every layer just makes you cry even more. How, how do we begin the work? Is it as simple as changing graduation requirements and adding statistics instead of calculus? Is it, is it just allowing schools more choice and opportunity? Is it pulling away federal legislation? Where do we begin to, to get us to where we need to be? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things I get excited about is the fact that, that education issues are inherently quite local. Families can make choices that serve their kids well. You know, a classroom teacher can make choices that serve their kids well. Schools can make, you know, it's not that we have to wait for Arnie Duncan or Betsy DeVos or Miguel Cardona. We, we don't have to wait for them to tell us what works. You know, there's a lot that could be done locally, most of it, I mean, in fact, and, and I'd say that arguably the federal government and state governments to some extent are headwinds and tailwinds but you can still make a lot of progress irrespective of that. And, and one of the things I find is when kids can't wait to be in school, when they're going deep on the things they're curious about, when they're creating bold initiatives that cut across disciplines, those kids are learning a lot. Now it may not be what this mandated curriculum says you've got to learn, but they're learning a lot and the fear drop in test scores doesn't happen. Now, now that's easy for me to say from the peanut gallery, but I think that over and over again, people tell me, my gosh, when that kid that just is like on fire all day long, that bounce in the step, the teachers that feel really energized by helping kids find their own lanes. There's just remarkable amounts of learning going on under those circumstances. And I think we pay an enormous price in our country by focusing on what kids have to learn instead of whether they're learning, right? I'd far rather have kids learning rapidly on things they're curious about with the adults that their educators trusted to do what they're very good at, which is to broaden the horizons beyond something narrow. I, I did it, it didn't end up meeting, it, it was kind of a flop, honestly, but anyway, I, I funded the start of a documentary and, and don't blame the principal, don't blame the school, blame, you know, blame what we did. Uh, but it was a school in one of the poorest sections of New York City where the new principal comes in. These, this is sixth, seventh and eighth grade kids not cherry pick, just a neighborhood school, not doing well in any way, shape or form. And he made the entire theme of the school around hip hop. And he's like, everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's ruining the future of these kids. And it got on my radar screen because they had one year, the highest increase in test scores across the entire New York City district, which is a vast district. 
And I visited the school and these kids just couldn't wait to be there. And, and the, the educators were taking a kid's passion and interest for hip hop and broadening, right? You know, the value of powerful language, the math behind percussion, you know, beats, the physics behind per percussion, the history of hip hop, you know, and it's like, you realize one thing can lead to everything, right? And if we trust our educators to find the hook that gets the kid interested and then help that kid see a broader perspective, that's gonna be a motivated kid, an engaged kid, a learning kid, a happy kid, and a kid that's on a path to create a successful life. And, and yet that's largely been bulldozed to the side you know, by an education system, honestly, where the blame is absolutely not the teachers. You know, like there are a lot of people in business who say it's those darn teachers or those teachers union. I mean, you know, like all sorts of, I think, very uninformed perspectives about what the issues are. The issues are bad policies, bad priorities. And until we start to say, wait a minute, if we want our kids to, to get good through the school process of being curious, we need to invite them to ask thought-provoking questions. That needs to be an important part of school. And, and the problem is, the, the conflict is that if, you're, and you're asking me very thought-provoking questions, but you know, you can't bubble test thought-provoking questions, right? You know, like the essence of a creative thought-provoking question is that maybe most people haven't even thought of it, but you can evaluate it, you can assess it. And once we start trusting our educators to evaluate and assess, to provide, provide informed feedback, to invite kids to do creative and distinctive things through school, we're going to be in great shape. Um, but, and this is the, the concern I, and I have this concern real time right now. I'm, I'm actually working on some things that I hope could shift it. But, you know, if we say in the spring, we're going to do yet another round of high stakes testing, you know, those numbers crowd out everything else. I mean, you see it, everybody listening to it sees it, is you can't say be creative and bold and audacious. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to publish in, you know, the, the town's magazine or newspaper, your test scores. Where we're also, oh, we don't really mean it, but we're gonna highlight the schools that have bad test scores. Well, we don't really mean to discourage teachers from taking on the most challenged students, students that come to school hungry, but we would like people to see that those teachers are not getting the kind of test score performance that the teachers in a rich suburb are getting. Those simple numbers drive out the joy and the essence, I think, of real learning. Yeah, you're, you're preaching right now and I'm listening. Yeah, I'm going to relate what you just said to a personal experience that I had. And it's interesting to me because, yeah, 100% agree that the numbers drown out everything else. The numbers drive what other people perceive to be progress or the lack thereof. But ironically, those same numbers do improve if we want to use, if we want to believe that numbers can improve. They, they do improve when we focus on the right things. A prime example. So right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm sitting in Michigan, uh, which has been my home for the better part of my life. But I spent a, a few years down in Florida where I was uh, invited to come down and serve in a position that they titled a turnaround principal. First of all, don't ever title somebody a turnaround anything because that's just <laughs> begging for people to, to rebel and push back. But ne neither here nor there. I was, a, I was invited to come down and serve as a turnaround principal in an impoverished neighborhood that served three um, housing projects. It was a 90-90-10 school, 90% of the kids um, were on free lunch. Actually, I would argue that it was, there's a lot more numbers we could throw in that. We had 40% of the, the kids had at least one parent incarcerated and about 10% of the kids were meeting a, any kind of benchmark, um, towards proficiency or mastery. When I came down, my goal was to not focus on the testing and to create a play-based environment. My belief was that that was the separator from my, my kids to the rest of the kids. The thing that differentiated wasn't necessarily their literacy skills or the fact that they hadn't been given a bunch of test prep. It was because they hadn't had a foundation of play early on, inquisitiveness and discovery. And so we preach that day in and day out. But this, this was Florida and Florida has mega districts with a lot of experts. Um, and the experts would come in daily to tell us, no, you cannot do that. Here are the worksheets you have to give your kids. You have to prep them to pass a test. And we fought it and we fought it and we fought it. It was constantly a daily battle to fight against the man or the people with the suits and with, with the answers. I, I say that story, I, I could tell you that eventually we saw success according to those numbers by focusing on the things that mattered. But I, I, I ask you, as we're talking, there might be some teachers and some educators, some principals out there that are saying, 
Dad, I, I agree with what you're saying. I want to be able to focus on those things. But the man keeps coming in and telling me I had to do something different. They're coming in with their suits and their ties and there's, they're wanting me to regurgitate their experience so we can create another generation of people that did the exact same thing. Yep. I, I guess I'm asking just real practical. If you're an educator out there, if you're a teacher out there, if you're a principal out there, how do you fight that battle? How do you focus on the things that matter? How do you focus on the questioning and inquisitiveness and those high order skills that our kids desperately need when other people, experts, the ones that pay the bills are telling you to do the other? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, the, the book I wrote, What School Could Be, I highlight all these great uh, learning experiences created primarily by classroom teachers, but, but also great things done by principals or superintendents. And, and when I talked to them about what they did, you know, kind of where did the idea come from? It was never a dictate from someone else. It was something they created because they believed in it. But they always said somebody had their back. You know, and so in a dream world, you know, principals will have the back of the innovative teachers. In a dream world, superintendents will have the back of the principals. We don't live in that dream world. So that happens sometimes, but, but not as often as we'd like it to happen, which is one of the reasons you know, we've gone to great lengths to provide the types of things that can start to shift the community's overall perspective. And what I found is there's a, a superintendent in New Jersey, a guy named Ross Kaysen, who's actually top to bottom turned around and I, a friend of mine in venture said, most turnarounds don't. <laughs> so when you said turnaround, <laughs> I'm like, that's yep. immediately what comes to mind. But, but he's completely transformed learning experiences in two different districts now in New Jersey. But he's seen most likely to succeed 30 times. He's shown it to school boards, shown it to parents, shown it to, and, and there are other things. I mean, we feature, you know, I worked with him for two and a half years on something and then he passed away last August, but Sir Ken Robinson and his TED talk. And so we have a, curated set of really powerful resources, you know, video-based resources that get to people emotionally as well as logically. And, and we say, you know, like, hey, they're not threatening. You know, like most likely to succeed doesn't say this is better, everybody has to do it. It says, hey, too new, too early, who knows whether it will work? This is what they do, don't copy it. They just say this works for them. And we go out of our way to just present it as, take a look and what do you think? You know, we, we deeply respect any individual or any community's ability to make up their own mind about what, what works in the best interest of their kids, their school, their community. Um, but if you can present these and have people start to think about it, I always say with Ken's TED Talk, nobody hates that talk. It, it's like stand-up comedy at its best. But I used to always joke with Ken, I said, like, people are laughing and smiling while you stick a knife in the back of traditional school, right? And, um, you know, but I think it just sort of invites people to think. And so, and if you can get some, I mean, we, we really emphasize an approach that says not everyone has to, but who wants to, you know, so when I, I do a lot in, in three different states right now, and I, I hope that, and the plan is for that to be more states going forward, but Hawaii, North Dakota, and Virginia, where I, you know, I'm there a lot, I grant some money, but, but I really look for leaders at the top that will say basically to teachers, I'm not here to tell you what you have to do. I trust you. I've got your back if you do innovative things. And then kind of work with superintendents and principals. And I always say, superintendent, don't tell all your schools they have to. Ask which ones want to. Principals, don't say all my teachers have to. Say which ones want to. And they just highlight lessons learned and, and the effect of it. And these little steps, you know, um, you know, one of the things we, we offer and encourage people to start with is just something simple. We call it curiosity time. So we have a really great 15 minute video, shows it in action in classrooms, shows a master practitioner kind of saying, here's what I do and here's why I do it. Sort of suggest in a, in a night, like not this is a prescription, but, but this, this master practitioner says, you know, like if I'd never done it before, here's how I get going. I like to start with a little bit of time for each student on their own to come up with their own thought-provoking questions. And then let students in small groups share what they're thinking about. So they're not embarrassed or they're not looking like the grade grubber or something. But if, if three of us were in a group, I could say, you know, I was kind of thinking of asking this and somebody else would say, oh, I don't know. Or I was thinking along the, you know, like it's suddenly it's a safe way to share those questions and then have the group shared out. So 
So we just say, hey, give this a try. It's, it's a 15 minute video to watch and it's 20 minutes of class time in a two, three, four week period, give it a shot. And then share with your colleagues, how did it go? And you know, it's like, wow, you know, like that's so powerful because you might start in a school with six teachers that do it. But when they do it and they say, oh my gosh, my kids came to life. Kids that don't ask questions actually had great questions. It told me what they're really interested in. So it helped us sort of navigate forward in ways that met the interesting questions that the kids have. You know, it's like, boom. And then it goes from six teachers to 12 to, to 20 to whatever. And if it's not all the teachers, I'm fine with that. Like, like I just say, let the sprinters sprint, the runners run, the walkers walk. And if somebody's just bound and determined to, to teach traditionally, you know, an instruction-driven, content-heavy model, you know, some of those teachers do a great job with that. And, and I don't really lose sleep or feel it's worth, you know, overstepping the degree of respect and autonomy our teachers should have in the classroom to say, no, 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 every teacher's got to do this. But I think it's really empowering when you say, if you want to give it a try and tell us how it went. And so that I think is a better change model. And I think kind of you come full circle. I think back to why I think so many business people who get involved with education have not gotten things that right. You know, first there's an arrogance with, they, I just know better, I went to school. But it's also like they were CEOs of big companies. And what do CEOs of big companies do? They decide what you have to do and then they put the money and assign people to do it, right? That's how big companies work. And I wasn't that, you're like I was in venture capital where you find people who have dreams and you work your ass off, you work your tail okay, off. You're good. <laughs> work your ass off to support them. How can I help you realize your dream instead of how can I make you do my goal? And it's a world of difference. And so, you know, so I, you know, I think that's a better change model. I think that respects people's role. The people who are closest to the consequences and the outcomes respects their role in charting their own path forward. I think that's a good thing. So, so let me preface this by saying, I agree completely, but I know that you, you oftentimes have people that hear what you say and they push back and they say, yeah, but, yeah, but. And I think one of the yeah, buts that I'm assuming you've heard, because I hear this all the time, the yeah, buts when you say, let teachers teach, teachers are the change agents, let them have more autonomy. People will push back and say, but what if my kid is in that classroom with that teacher that decides not to change? What if that impacts my student or my child and they do get the teacher that wants to just pass out all the worksheets and teach cursive and um, teach the, the other things, test prep? Shouldn't, shouldn't they have to change? If you're saying this is good for your kids, isn't it good for all kids? Uh, actually, that's interesting because I did not expect that to be, you know, it's a great point. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address that point, but I expected you challenge me on doesn't content matter. So maybe we'll footnote that and come <laughs> we'll, back. We'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd say, you know, like, and I, I can relate, right? Because I was that, I was that parent and I'm watching my kids, you know, go through something and I'm saying, this is not just going to, not just isn't helpful. This actually will impair their future, which is sort of define the last 10 years of my life. You know, like in some ways I wish my kids had not been ever been in that situation. So, so yes, my heart goes out to those parents. I get it that, you know, their kid doesn't have multiple ways to do fourth grade. You know, I've lived and breathed that. Two things I'd say. First is the more we get to a point where teachers are teaching in teams instead of alone. Mm. I, I think if we want our kids to be great collaborators, which when I go, I've yet to be in a community where we've gone through, you know, a thoughtful process to say, what do you want your kids to get good at? Always, in, the words might change, but it's always work well with others, collaborate, teamwork, whatever. If we don't model that in our schools, something's really wrong. And so I think we can begin to blur that up by having teachers teach in teams. And, and so instead of, you know, my kid's going into fifth grade. I know I want teacher X and I sure don't want teacher Y. It's very different when it's clusters of teachers working together on things. And I think there's positives there. I'd say the other thing is, um, as tempting as it is to say to teacher X, you can't do that anymore. It's counterproductive, right? If they don't believe it, if they don't really think that's the right thing, 
handing of marching orders. I mean, honestly, teachers have had a steady stream for 30 years of marching orders that come and go. And, and I don't blame and I fully understand kind of an attitude that says, hmm, I'll ignore this, I'll wait it out. You know, that superintendent will be gone in two years. You know, like, like you know, we'll go from this priority nationally to that priority, you know, like, yeah, there's a different form of new math. That'll, that's just a fad. I, I you know, so, so that will happen. I think families have a lot of latitude with all the discretionary hours kids have. And so I'd say, if you're dreading that teacher, you know, and it's hard, but I mean, I have direct experience with this, particularly when kids get to high school, it takes a degree of courage for a parent to say, I don't really care how you do in that class. You know, like you, you this strikes me as well as a bit of a clunker. You know, so don't take it serious because parents will just freak out. Oh, this could cost my kid a chance to go to this college or this could give, you know, the fact is that we do a lot more damage to our kids by shoving their noses and stuff that they know, we know, know everybody ought to know doesn't make sense. And so I always say, you know, like to, to parents, first of all, I think college is overrated. That, that gets me in trouble with people. I, I think you know, in my book, What School Could Be, I, I highlight a different book, um, but a book called, this is worth a bit of a digression. So it was a, a guy named Mac Bledsoe, whose son was a famous football quarterback, Drew Bledsoe. And Mac Bledsoe write, wrote this book, which I love, called Parenting with Dignity. And like a lot of great books, which you might say isn't the case with my books, but anyway, but like a lot of great books, you can summarize it quite quickly. And, and his point was, when you have a newborn, you make all their decisions. Your goal as a parent is to affect an orderly transition so that by, time, by the time your child's 18, they make all of their decisions. Not all their small decisions, not work with you as a consultant you know, on their big decisions. They make their big decisions. If you've done your job as a parent, you will have a kid that can think carefully, weigh the options and make their own decisions. And he makes the point that you might believe it's just fine for you to tell them, no, you're not going to major in X. You can't major in, you know, history. You've got to major in accounting or you, whatever, you know, like, you know, and you, and you know, I'm sure you deal with your share of parents that are still running their kids' lives at age 25 or 30 or whatever. Um, but, it, but his point was that, that oftentimes the decisions that you, you're mortified about, you know, your kids at a party, got a ride there with somebody who's been drinking and now they got to make a decision about how to go home. You know, like the model that says my kid's going to get on the phone and say, you know, mom or dad, you know, like here I am. I just want to relate to you the facts. Uh, tell me what I should do. You know, that doesn't happen, right? They make that decision. And if you haven't equipped them to make sound decisions, they're going to make bad decisions and you could, could be quite regrettable. Well, I say the same thing about education. Supposing we said, our goal, the goal of schools is to make school less relevant, right? Supposing we just said we want our kids to develop the learning how to learn skills, to be able to tee up what they're interested in going deep on and to run with it. And, and surely by the time kids are in college, that ought to happen a lot, but it doesn't. You know, surely in high school, we ought to be moving in that direction, but we don't. And, and what happens? And you get out of school into the modern workplace. And over and over again, I'll hear employers will tell me, God, I recruited these kids from a top college. And they're like, go fetch a dog biscuit, kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Mm -hmm. Well, we got this customer service problem. Could you figure it out and come up with a good solution? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. So what do I need to do? Well, I just kind of told you. Well, it's too ambiguous. You know, break it down. Tell me exactly where's my textbook for fixing a customer service problem. And so I feel like there's a lot more opportunity for empowering kids to go forward in a healthy, productive way by just inviting them to, to get good at what they're interested in. Mm. And, and I don't think there's as big a penalty to be paid in college process if that's what you care about as people think. Because a lot of college admissions officers are actually really good at figuring out which kid's been micromanaged by their parent. you know. That they are. And, and I think you're, I always say, are you going to be, have a better long-term relationship with a kid that, where you just said, I'm supportive of you. I want you to, I want you to pick things you're really interested in and do them. 
be bold, be on, you know, take some chances. You know, the course that everybody's saying don't take because you might get a bad grade because it's a, it's a hard grading teacher who's going to change your life. If that's interesting, take it. Don't worry about it. You might get a B minus or a whatever, you know, like go for it. I don't know that, that I think is the opportunity to, to, you know, because back to your, you know, like, oh, I can't have my kid get that teacher. It's like, they're going to get that boss. You know, they're going to get, they're going to get that mayor. They're going to get that president. We don't always get to pick who the adult is. that has a lot of sway over our life. We have a lot of discretion and choice about how we prepare kids to chart their own course, deal with ambiguity, come up with creative problems and carry them out and produce something they're proud of. So good. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I have literally 50 questions I want to ask. And I feel like you just addressed 47 of them with that response, but it, it is so powerful. You know, before this attack way of saying I talked too long on that. No, one. no, it's perfect. It's, it's you're saving me from having to ask the question. So I, I appreciate it. You know, before we started recording, you and I were exchanging emails of the similarities and things that we we've talked about or that we we write about. And the, the bike riding example is is one of the things that, that we've both used um, in our in our work. And what you just summed up really takes that example to the nth degree. You know, my eyes were opened up to the things that I was doing wrong about 12 years ago when my oldest son was going through that experience. And at the time I was a classroom teacher and I thought I was a good teacher, but I was definitely a teacher that was setting my kids up to pass tests, not necessarily to succeed in life. But when I had my own child go through the, the bike riding experience, and we all know the saying that once you learn how to ride a bike, you never forget, I had this epiphany that with that example, with that analogy of teaching my child to ride a bike, there are so many things I don't have to teach him that in my classroom, if he were learning how to ride a bike in my classroom, I would have taught him. My child, he's, he's in high school now, and I guarantee he probably still doesn't understand the difference between a spoke and a chain. He doesn't understand how the gear ratios work, but he can hop on his bike and he can go for a ride without falling down. Yeah. You know, and, it, and that's something, if he were to not touch his bike for the next 15 years and go grab it 15 years from now, he would still be able to hop on his bike and go for a ride because he's learned that skill. And that's what you basically just summed up for us is that we have to teach kids the things that matter most so that when they are independent, those skills are still deep within them and they are, are a part of their essence. And it's who they are, they're, they're risk takers, they're innovators, they are the people that are going out there and making a change. So I wanna circle back because you, you asked and you thought I was gonna ask a question. I'm gonna ask that question in a slightly different way. Not, I'm not going to ask explicitly, does content matter? Because I think you kind of summed that up. But I, I, yet another pushback that some might present to you. America, the greatest country on the planet, we lead the world in innovations and trademarks. And if we were to say, are our schools succeeding? I've heard some people point to that metrics and say, well, our schools are doing a good job because we're the richest country in the history of the world. We have more trademarks and more innovations than anybody else on the planet. So I, I, my question, it's kind of a, a binary, this or that question, but you can take it any way you want to. Do you feel that our country is succeeding if we define it as successful in spite of our schools or because of our schools? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, the, at the risk of generalizing or overgeneralizing, you know, I, I'm firmly of the view that we're succeeding despite our schools. Mm. And, and I'd also say our teachers know that more than anyone, our teachers know that. So I'm not saying something that educators in the field are going to say, oh my gosh, you're wrong. I, I think it's very important to underscore that the reason it's despite our schools is not because of our teachers. It's, it's in fact, because we don't listen to our teachers. We don't trust them. It's because we obsess on these high stakes tests of narrow low level prof proficiencies, you know, or proficiency probably overstating it. You know, so when I go to a state and I've been to all states, I will, in, in most places you can find practice questions for the state mandated exams that block many kids from getting out of high school that tell many, many kids, because they take it serious. I mean, it's very difficult for kids through school to have developed the perspective that this test is total bullshit. You know, when they get something and says you're in the bottom third, they take that seriously, right? 
and 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 so when I look at these practice questions, I'm appalled, right? Because while the PISA test, which is used internationally, actually has pretty good questions and more thoughtful graders, you know, by the time you look at what's going on in a state, th those the amount spent on those tests is at the exact worst spot. Mm. It soaks up all the discretionary money in the state education budget, takes every penny you could have for innovation in schools, but it's still not enough to do a good job on the test. And so I'll look at the math questions. I'm like, many of them are just incredibly poorly formulated questions. You know, I'll read it and I'll just say, this person doesn't understand math. And, and I've got a good math background. I'll, I'll look at the language arts and I'll say like, this is the most boring reading passage in the world. I mean, how many kids get highly energized to read something that's just bad writing, you know, about some topic they really don't care about and then answer a multiple choice question about signs of author bias or something. I mean, it's just like, these are not good reflections of the kinds of competencies we want our kids to have. And, and if you're lucky enough, which you have, you know, your suburbs there in, in parts of Michigan, and I have them here in Virginia, you know, if you're lucky enough, fortunate enough to pay for an expensive test tutor for your kids, mm -hmm. uh, and let's say you stop short of paying for somebody to bribe their way into college, let's just say you're spending, you know, I mean, people on this, they probably know this, but maybe not, but some of these test tutors are charging, you know, 250, 500 bucks an hour. You know, these aren't, these aren't like minimum wage resources. These are super expensive resources. And, and what do they advise, right? What do they, what do they say? They say a couple things. They say, first, uh, these tests are designed to be scored by a computer. So you got to think narrow and formulaically. Do not ever think outside the box. Don't bring, put your creativity to the side. Because if you start looking at different angles on these things, you're going to end up with the wrong answer. The second thing they say, a wonderful life lesson is, if you get to a problem and you think it's gonna take you a while to figure it out, skip it, mm -hmm. right? Because these are timed exams. Very good question. Why in a million years we'd say competency is based on a timed exam, but you realize it all works to the interest of the test prep organizations and the companies that design these tests sell a lot of test prep material. And so, so it's not okay, take an example, you know, like, I'm given a multiple choice question about factoring a polynomial. Now we'll leave to the side that no scientist or engineer factors polynomials by hand, right? Leave that to the side, which is probably a big turd ball to leave to the side. But now we say, I could spend four minutes kind of figuring it out. Like, how do we do this or whatever? Or I could have drilled on it ad nauseum so I can just do it in 12 seconds and get to the next question. So what's valued in those tests? The kid that drilled, which kids drill? The ones that have parents that push them, the ones that have parents that can afford a charismatic, relatable, knowledgeable coach. You know, it's not enough just that they're good at prep, but they've gotta be somebody that the kid likes to hang around with. Those are the ones that make 500 bucks an hour. And, and so those kids end up being the gifted kids, the brilliant kids, the 1% kids. And, and then you look at our colleges who dominates these college campuses. For the most part, it's the rich kids. And so you say, whoa, is this working? Is this fair and equitable? Is this preparing kids for life? And the answer is absolutely not. And so, you know, you just sort of step back and say, could we do better than this? And the answer is we could absolutely do hugely better. And we never, and I, you know, I mean, so I, I try to leave most of my business career behind me, but I don't leave all of it um, because I know, you know, like it's, it's actually, enjoyable and interesting to evaluate somebody based on examples of the real work. You know, when, when I was in venture capital, I did well in venture capital. The best single thing that I did was changing my priorities fairly early in my career away from academic superstars because I actually found they were not geared up. They, they, they largely had crushed out of them what you need to do well in a world of innovation and ambiguity. So I look for really eccentric backgrounds, you know, weird backgrounds, you know, an anthropology major or a dropout or something. And I didn't care about grade point average or where you went to school or any of that bullshit. I just, I would ask people, I'd say, could you send me three writing samples that tell me what I should know about you? Three writing samples. And oh my gosh, it was so interesting and revealing, right? And, and so you look at it and I just think we have, 
we learn so much from examples of people's best work. You know, like in your time capsule, you might, this won't be one of them, but you might serve up your three best podcasts and say, here, here is an example of me at my best. I organized this. I pulled off a podcast. I developed a listenership. I got guests. I asked great questions. I did a great job. You know, like you did all these amazing things. I don't need you to do a multiple choice question on podcast. <laughs> you're like, you're like, I just need to listen, you know, and, and so we could do that. And, and if these admissions officers would just start to look at examples of great student work, it would change K through 12 overnight. And, and I'm tired of colleges that spend millions of dollars mailing brochures to get more people to apply so they can turn down more people and look more selective and say, we couldn't dare spend three more minutes evaluating student work on an application because it doesn't take that long. I know I did that. You, you opened up a, a can that I don't know that I necessarily want to go down, but I will, I'll peek in a little bit because your work focuses a lot on equity and leveling the playing field and giving all kids uh, equal opportunity to find that success. You know, recently in the news, there was a lot of news of, about a couple of celebrities that paid for their, their children to get into select universities. And I think universally people said that is completely wrong. How dare they? They need to pay the price. But what you just articulated is in essence that that has actually been happening for a long time. When you have a lot of parents that can afford the means to go pay for coaches, maybe not athletic coaches that are going to lie on an application, but academic coaches that are willing to help butter the application, if you will, by helping those individual students have um, inflated GPAs or inflated scores on the tests that were created by those same test prep organizations. We, we were in this cycle where those with the means get the means and those without are left without. Can, can you talk to me really quickly? Um, it doesn't have to be quickly, but can you talk to me about some of the things that you are doing to try to really level that playing field, making it more accessible for all schools, all parents, all educators to have access to, to innovation and those skills that you are saying are important so that we don't have to have those with getting more and those without being left behind. Yeah, I'd, I'd start with this observation and, and I admit I'm not a data guy, you know, so, so, you know, what do they say? Two, two anecdotes don't make a proof, but I, I'd say I'm at least e extensively anecdotal. You know, when I see patterns, it's not based on one or two school visits. It's based on a lot. What do I see? I see when you make kids study stuff they have no interest in, it's the kids with the pushy parent and the financial resources in the community that showers their school with resources. Those are the kids that do well on boring, irrelevant, largely academic content. Those are the kids that do well in SATs. Those are the kids that do well in AP classes. When you completely shift it and say, take on something you care about, create something bold and audacious, keep at it until you get something you're proud of, be comfortable with the fact that your first two, three, five tries are gonna fail, but we value you for really getting something to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. What I find is that when we go to our under-resourced schools, the kids that have been told they're not gifted, over and over again, people say, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know they had that in them. Uh, oh my, they really just suddenly sprung into life. It, it plays to their intrinsic motivation instead of the parent push. When, when you take those same super well-off micromanaged kids, they're a bit allergic to that, right? Like ambiguous, like, tell me, make it clear. What do I need to do to get an A? And I would say like of, of those two paths, you know, drilling on factoring polynomials and closed form integrals and signs of author bias and that kind of stuff. Is that really preparing anybody for life? I'd say actually quite the opposite. And when you say create bold initiative, learn what you need to learn, leverage resources around you, stick with it until you've done something you're proud of, better preparation for life, but also plays to the strengths, I think, of a lot of the kids we think of as not being gifted because they've been told by these narrow standardized tests that they're not gifted. And, and you know, and it builds on itself, right? It builds on itself because, and I know I've got friends. I mean, this is, this is a world I'm familiar with is that the rich families, they're reading their, 
you know, if their kid's not reading at age four, they're panicked. They get to they get to kindergarten and they do really well on the reading stuff. The kids that may only have one parent in their life who's working two jobs, they get to kindergarten, they're not reading as much. So what's our answer? Let's bury the second kid in worksheets. We're going to catch up. You know, like it's, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. So I think that there's an enormous amount of pent up potential that we could unleash by letting kids take on bold things, play, you know, pursue their own curiosities. You know, there are lots of things that could be done and are being done where you just see, oh my gosh, better preparation for life. And not entirely, but making enormous contributions to living on the playing field. And so, but it all gets back to, it should school look like, it looked like when I went to school 50 years ago, 60 years ago, or should school look like something that prepares kids for the future? And, and we do an awful lot of tinkering around the edges on stuff. You know, I've been, I went back to my old high school. You know, I've been back there multiple times in the last two years. Most, there are kids that are taking the exact same courses as seniors that I took as a senior, you know, 50 years later, 52 years later. But there have been two, two things that changed in that time period. We talked before about the history of education. One is any form of hands-on learning has been dropped. You know, when I was in school, I, I had to take, and I didn't do well in shop, despite my father was a carpenter, but, but that wasn't my strength. That's been dropped, all to college ready. The second thing is, I actually don't remember doing homework when I was in high school. I probably did some, I'm sure somewhere along the way I did some, but I had like half my life when I was in high school to do what I wanted to do which today we'd panic and say, oh my gosh, that kid's only half as productive as they could be. I actually think that was the best part of growing up for me, all that time for free exploration, for figuring out what I was interested in, to try things and everything else. And so, so in some ways, all the intensity we place on schools to make them better, to, to say, oh my gosh, we can't be like Japan. I'm doing something Saturday night with a big group that follows most likely to succeed in Nagano, Japan. So I've got a 8 p.m. till 10 p.m. call on Saturday night with them. But you know, like they've drilled their kids out the wazoo. They have no innovation in their country. And, and you know, you said before about, you know, is it working? I think it's ironic, right? That the, that the business people that push for more college ready content are the ones that peeled out of college. You know, it's like, they're the, they're the ones that said, wait, this is a waste of my time. Uh, you know, you've got, and I like the guy and everything. I call him kind of a friend, but you've got Sal Khan who writes a book saying, I hated my lectures at MIT. They were a total waste of time doing this vast reservoir of lectures. You know, you have Bill Gates who peeled out of Harvard after what, a year or something, say every kid's got to do, you know, uh, uh, common core college ready and everything else. It's just like, wait a minute, you know, eat your own cooking. Oh, that's powerful. <laughs> that's powerful. You know, it, you remind me you, you, when you talk about Japan, back in 2003, I had the opportunity to go there. They invited me over because they were studying American schools and they wanted me as an American to help inform them on things that they could do to enhance their educational experience. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I left there thinking, wow, there are so many things that we need to be stealing from them. Not necessarily the drill and kill culture, but really the opportunity to embrace kids as kids and that the, the schooling system revolved around kids. The fact that even simple things like teachers were the ones rotating classes and the students got to stay in a collective unit because it was about the kids first. It's just powerful, powerful insight. Ted, I, I'm curious, I, I ask all of my guests when we're getting um, close to the end of the story here to, if they had the opportunity, so you've been, you've been given tremendous opportunities, 50 states to speak to some powerful, powerful people and to speak in, in front of huge audiences at times with microphone in hand. If you had the opportunity to stand on a stage in front of all educators, the educational system of America and leave the audience with a mic drop moment where you're going to say something that's just going to invigorate, change, inspire, cause reflection, cause this ripple effect to really take course, what would it be? What would, the, what would Ted Dendersmith's mic drop moment be? <laughs> you no are pressure right. whatsoever. <laughs> this is like, oh, I, I, there are rare 
it's rare for me to get a question that sort of stops me in my tracks. So I consider me to be fully stopped in my tracks. Um, but I, I feel, first, I feel like it's important to, to communicate emphatically to our teachers that, that maybe not everybody, but lots of us are deeply appreciative of the work they do. And, and I always say, it's like when I talk to adults, not in the education field, every single adult I talk to can, can name specifically some teachers that just change their lives. So I love the saying, teachers change lives. And, and I'd say like, yeah, we've handed you a lot of, you know, mind-numbingly stupid policies. We've shoved a bunch of stuff down your throat. Um, but first, fight for your kids, because if you don't, no one else will. But also, I'm optimistic that our time is coming. You know, my, my feeling is parents have newfound appreciation for the role of teachers. They've seen at home what kids are having to study and they recognize it doesn't make that much sense. And I think that the, the kind of the overhang of college on what we do in K through 12 is starting to fade. People are starting to realize, wait, there are alternative ways. And so, you know, it's like, it's a choice of what you do with your life. But I, I'm so grateful for people in the field of education who have committed their lives to helping kids find their path forward. And so to me, it's like, you're our heroes. I don't just say that, you know, you know, at a baseball game or, you know, you know, like, like a lot of people like to say that once and then move on. And, and, you know, I, it defines my life. I mean, how do I celebrate encourage and support people that I consider our society's heroes and more than ever, I think our K through 12 educators hold the key to the future of millions of kids and the future of our country. Mm. That was good. So for somebody that was stumped and speechless for a minute, you delivered. The mic is just sitting there rattling on the floor and jaws are dropped right now. Um, you summed it up so nicely. There might be people listening to this as well that are saying, wow, Ted Densmith is saying all the things I need to continue to, to hear. How can people continue to, to chart your course, get connected with your work, um, follow you um, everywhere and, and see all the amazing things that are still to come? Because I know you have some big announcements coming later on this year, even of some things that you're going to do. Yeah. So we've got a, an offering right now. It's on the website. It's easy to remember because it's, it's the same as the, my, the last book I wrote, but www what school could be singular. A lot of people will throw another S in, but what school could be.org, um, which is a title that cost me many, many sleepless nights. <laughs> I can't even begin, you know, it's a bit of a digression, but the number of times I wake up at 2 a.m. and have some ideas for a book title, write them down and then wake up in the morning and not be able to read my writing. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of it. But anyway, so www.whatschoolcouldbe.org, where we have these on-ramps, you know, things that people saw in the film most likely to succeed, where they'd say, we'd like more of the learning to be driven by students. We'd like more connections to the real world. We'd like our community to be supportive. We'd like uh, our authentic, our assessments to be authentic, or we want our community to be more caring and connected. So we have these on-ramps, these small, I call them nano practices that, that some teachers can introduce, try it, build on that, share and, and expand and broaden. We, we're later this year, something in March, we'll be launching that with an entire, with the ability to support communities of practice. So anybody who wants to set up their own PLC with teachers in their school or teachers in their community or teachers from wherever can form their own almost like private Facebook, mm. trade notes, share articles, you know, encourage each other. And then another part of that will be the ability and we'll be offering some kind of coaching offerings, you know, so people saying, hey, if you want to just get started, think about doing A, B, and C, or I would do X, Y, and Z or whatever. But also it means as our community grows, a teacher in, you know, Lansing who got really good at Socratic seminar can offer their own course on Socratic seminar and invite other teachers in their school or their district or across Michigan or around the world, you know, to, to participate. So we're doing that, but it's really more of a it's almost like an open source Wikipedia model, you know, like we draw on best practices in the field, work hard to capture them with great video. But again, it's, it's informed and led by what our educators are doing that they're excited about. And then we just try to capture that and then sort of generate enthusiasm and support for others who want to do that. Because as you know, 
if you're the only innovative teacher in a school, it can be tiring. Yeah. If suddenly there are a few, and nobody's saying everybody has to be like that, but isn't it interesting what they're doing? And suddenly parents start saying, because this happened, right? You know, Parents will suddenly send to the principal, what happened in school today? My kid came home excited. I really want to understand more. And, and I think that's how we change things is, you know, small steps lead to big change, trusting teachers to lead the way, but with a, a real view of where we want to get. And it's not where I want to get, but it's where that school wants to get. So good. So good. Eliminating the yeah, buts. You know, when you travel to all 50 states and you see great things happening elsewhere and everywhere, it encourages others to say, oh, I, get, I can do it here when you allow teachers to share their success stories and to share their innovative practices, others buy in and say, oh, I can do that here. And it does, it leads to that ripple effect of change where all, all lasting change starts at the grassroots um, level. So start at the grassroots, start where it matters most, start with the kids and the teachers and let it bubble up and stop all the top down. So I love that on so many levels. So Ted, thank you again so much for this. Um, the conversation was everything I hoped it would be. I, I appreciate you giving time out of your crazy busy schedule to, to make time for me and then all of the others that are listening to this. I'll, I'll have lots of links down in the show notes for people to connect. But for those of you that just like to listen, just like to watch, he told you exactly where to go. Go grab his books, watch his TED Talks, listen to his conversations, listen to all of the things he has um, going on in the world and go to the website see things that uh, grab onto some things that you can use in your classrooms, in your schools to truly change destinies and teach the things that matter most. Ted, thank you again. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate all that you are doing. And people, if, if you love this, just wait, because the next episode, I get to chat with one of his friends, Tony Wagner. So um, sit tight and enjoy the show. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks for all you're doing as well. You're inspiring. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Lasting Learning. Interested in learning more? Feel free to check out one of my books, like Making Assessment Work, for Educators Who Hate Data But Love Kids, or Bold Humility, or It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime. Just visit schmidto.net for more information, or feel free to check out Amazon.